Welcome to New England Soccer Journal's The Goal Podcast, the podcast for serious soccer players and their supporters to help further their development and navigate their way throughout their soccer careers. And now, here's your host, Matt Langoni. Welcome to another episode of New England Soccer Journal's The Goal Podcast. Today, I'll be joined by Amherst College women's soccer head coach, Jen Hughes. Jen, thanks so much for joining us. My pleasure. Thanks for carving out time to to hear about Amherst women's soccer today. I'm excited to talk about it. Absolutely. Thank you for carving out the time. I know this is a, a busy time of year with the, the start of the season really just days away, kind of. How are things looking? I know you, you've really only been, been back to work for about a week or so with the team, but how are things looking? What's kind of the, the mindset of the players right now? Is there just a lot of excitement? Yeah, there is. It's funny. Folks will ask me like, oh, are you excited for the season with just days before the players move in? And I have to be honest, I have some mixed feelings. I have a, a young family. And, and so the anticipation of, of being away a lot from them is hard and a bit anxiety producing. And then when the players arrive, they just bring like so much energy and so much excitement and it's it's very contagious and so once we actually get going then i am in just it's pure joy for me so i'm excited to to finally be in it as you said we've been going for for about a week we had our first scrimmage yesterday and it's just been really fun i mean we haven't seen some of the first years in in about a year and it's just fun to to see them on the field in this environment and and seeing them make connections with our returning players and learning how we do things and it's fun to see the returners and in different roles as leaders particularly the the seniors and juniors are more veteran players and to to see them like really teaching the underclassmen like just how how we do things in our program, how things work. It's a really fulfilling full cycle moment for me. This is a, a milestone season for you, year 20 with, with the program. And we chat a little bit before we got on, but you, there's been a lot of success over the last two decades for this program. And you've, you've been around for, for all of it and you've overseen it. And what is it about this program that, that makes it stick out? What, what kind of student athletes are you guys finding and recruiting and and what are kind of the main principles that you're trying to instill in these players? Yeah, I mean, certainly soccer is a big part of it, right? We want to bring in really talented players who can not only thrive at our current level, but really elevate our program to the next level. And so the soccer piece is really important. We play a, a fairly technical style, pretty possession oriented. We look to build out of the back. We look to knock the ball around the midfield. And then once we enter our attacking third of the field, we we look to go to goal with some urgency. So the soccer piece is, is certainly a big part of the recruiting process. A bigger part, though, is really recruiting the, the individual. So we, we do so much due diligence around what the what the players are like as people. We talk to certainly the player. We get to know them through the recruiting process many phone calls, many Zooms. We we try to, during COVID, certainly it was hard, but we try to get every prospective student on campus who we're considering supporting in the admission process. And that's sort of a big 
a big piece of the puzzle. We talk to high school coaches. We talk to club coaches. We talk to guidance counselors, like anyone that can shed some light on on the perspective as a as a person and a student, not just a soccer player. So there's there's a there's a type of person we're looking for: really strong character, really intense work rate. Amherst is it, it's it's tough, man. It's like it's a competitive program, soccer wise. It's a rigorous academic institution, and what takes it takes a certain type of person to really thrive here. So that's our job to to try to just wade through the the thousands of prospective student athletes who who contact us and and really find the right fit for the institution as a whole and our soccer program specifically. That's a great point. NESCAC as a whole, NESCAC programs such as yours, I mean, it's they're known for academics as well as athletics and it, it it's that is a, a tough part because these student athletes i mean division three soccer is a massive commitment on top of the academics H- how has it gotten to the point where the nescac has become become so strong in soccer across the board men's and women's soccer has, has become so strong in a, in a league that is so known for academics i mean how, how do you think it's gotten to that point what is it about the nescac programs that I mean, it's almost, I feel like, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but, you know, maybe there's players who are kind of on the cusp of being a Division One player, and it might, maybe, maybe it doesn't work out, and then they'll, they'll go, NESCAC's like the next thing, it almost seems like, after playing Division One. Do you, do you feel that way with players? I do. I mean, it's, I think, first, specifically, the NESCAC in general, really attracts or appeals to student athletes who take their sport really seriously so they're accomplished athletes and and they also academics are really important that's a an important part of their identity they like school they're good at it they want to be excellent at it and whatever they choose to do and so that's the type of student athlete that i think the nescac appeals to and and i have to say like a lot of our players have the ability, certainly, to compete at the Division One level, and so for them, for for those that can, it's then it's a decision of like how much do I want my sport to dominate my life, and I think that Amherst and the Nescacs in general like allow students to play their sport at a really high level and compete nationally, which many of them wouldn't be able to do at a Division I school. It's one thing to compete for a conference championship year in and year out. It's another thing to compete nationally. And I think that's what the NESCAC offers. It, it offers students the ability to be really serious about their academics and not sacrifice anything. I mean, Any student at Amherst, any student athlete at Amherst can major in anything they want. There's no restrictions around, oh, you can only major in certain things because there's labs and there's studio courses and they conflict with practice. Like there there isn't any of that. I mean, certainly there are conflicts, right? But the philosophy here is that academics come first and we work your sport around that. And we've been wildly successful in our ability to do that. And not to mention, like the rest of college, right? Like college is a time for growth and 
certainly these these players are hyper focused on their academics and soccer is so important. And in order to compete nationally, we have to be really serious about it. But like there's this whole other thing called life that happens like outside of school and outside of soccer and our players have the time and and energy because we our off season is quite a bit less intense to pursue other interests on campus and really be a part of the community as a whole and i think that's so appealing for many players and and then they go out and and use all those skills that they developed in the classroom on the field and as part of a community to really make an impact post Amherst. How impacted is is your program by the transfer portal? Because I, I would think like a, a school like Amherst where like so, so many times players transfer because they don't like the way things are working out on the field. But the education aspect is so good in Amherst or, or another another NESCAC school that like why why would you leave that that atmosphere? Why would you leave like the the combination of athletics and academics that you're getting at that school? So do you, do you see are there are there players coming out uh, of of your school and other Nesca schools, and are are there also players who want to transfer in? Is that uh, have you guys been impacted a lot by that by the portal? Yeah, not really. When the portal first came about, there was sort of this notion that it was going to be the wild wild west, yeah. and <laughs> right. I mean, COVID's Really, I think I think the transfer portal has come into play more with COVID than just because it exists by itself, right? Mm. Like without COVID, I don't think the transfer portal would affect much in Division Three. Now, <laughs> having said that, right, we have not been impacted much by it. So it's it's really unusual, to your earlier point, for players to leave an Amherst or a NESCAC. I, I do think the experience is such a perfect balance among a rigorous academic experience and the ability to pursue whatever your passions are academically with a really high level of soccer and then having that the time and the energy to pursue other things on campus. So yeah, I, I don't it doesn't directly impact our program from that standpoint. We don't have students transferring out, out much, really at all. I, I can't think of an example since the transfer portal came about that that we've had someone enter it and leave. Do we have players transferring in not so much every once in a while we get interest from typically a division one student athlete who is interested in transferring that said it's hard it's hard it's hard to to get into an Amherst and NESCAC so we don't see that so much either it has though affected division three like pretty dramatically I think for programs with graduate programs and Amherst is not one Many players are using their COVID season to transfer from a Division One program to a Division Three program with with graduate programs. So I, I think the NESCAC, you'll have to fact check me on this one. I think the NESCAC has some sort of restriction on student athletes transferring from Division One institutions to our schools. Mm. 
but I don't know that for sure because we don't have grad programs, so we're not affected by it. But I can't think of an example off the top of my head of any other NESCAC school that has brought in Division One transfers using their COVID season. So I suspect that we do have some sort of, <laughs> some sort of waiver process or restriction that that one would have to go through. But it is happening at other Division Three schools where they're getting many Division One transfers using their COVID season as graduate students in those programs. And as expected, those programs are are thriving. <laughs> I know. <laughs> It's true. This is like a time, obviously a time we've never seen before because of that COVID year and because because of the portal, that combination, I think, has just changed the landscape in D3 and D1. I mean, D1, the the, the movement, I mean, I, I saw like a stat in college basketball, like the amount of players that are just leaving and, and just, just in basketball, not even other sports. It's just, it's crazy. I think it's just, it's shifted the whole, the whole landscape. Your team is, is, Last year, coming off a, a great season, a NESCAC championship last year, 18-win season, another trip to the NCAA tournament. On the heels of that, what are the, what are the expectations and, and what are you anticipating for 2023? I, I imagine you probably like the roster you have and, and have some expectations, but what, what are you thinking? Yeah, I, I don't feel that pressure. I get that question a lot, like, how are you feeling after having had such a successful season last year? And every year it's a new team. So I, and that's the way I look at it. Like, I don't, there are no expectations for me. I mean, certainly like we're talented. I'm hopeful that we can generate similar success this year as we did last year. But it's, there's new, we lost some big personalities. We have a whole crew of, of first years that are joining us. We have a completely different vibe and team chemistry. And we're, we're working now during preseason, right, to build those connections among our returning players, hopefully strengthen those connections and then generate like new connections among our first years and our returning players and and our first years with each other. Like they don't even know each other. Yeah. So I just like each year is a, a new year. Each team is a new team. You have different challenges and, and, and all of that. So I, I don't feel any pressure that said, like, man, I am really excited about our group. Like, we we are so talented and it's it's our job as a team to put the best product on the field that we can and trying to figure out like off-field chemistry because i believe that translates to on-field chemistry so we're developing and building that now and we're hoping that translates to the field and then finding different combinations of players i feel like we have a really deep roster and that's a challenge in and of itself, right? Like when you have players who where the, where they're, the margins of difference are so small and one player is getting time and another player isn't because of that small margin of difference, it's it's challenging to keep everyone bought in and motivated. It's a, a it's not a super long season, but it's long enough and it's hard enough to like keep finding that motivation and passion when you're not getting minutes on game day, which for many players is really most players, probably all players <laughs> <laughs> is really fulfilling. 
Right. So, yeah, I mean, it's a different team. I'm excited about our talent, but we have a lot of work to do to put the pieces together. Now, the team only surrendered 13 goals last year, I believe, in, in 21 matches. So, do you, I mean, not that goal scoring was a problem for, for, for you either, but is defensively, is that the identity right now? I mean, do you feel like preventing goals and keeping teams off the score sheet, is that where you guys really are strong or separate yourselves from other teams? Yeah, I would say that's one of the things that we take a lot of pride in. We have a lot of returning players in our back, well, in goal and our back line. And they're, they're competitive in, in, in and of themselves. And I think we take it really hard when we give up a goal. If you look at our schedule last year, I think we gave up like eight goals in like the first, I don't know, three games or something. Wow. So we had a really rough start to the season. And it's one of the things we, we focus on right off the bat. So our very first practice, we're working on 1v1 defending mm. and really breaking it down and talking about like the fo- foundational pieces of 1v1 defending. And then we work to build to a back four. And so that's really what we've been working on, even with so many veteran players that still like the first thing we do. And and the reason it's the first thing we do is because I'm a I'm a big believer in defense wins championships, right? And I, I think that everybody has to be on the same page. Like we can't have first years who haven't been a part of our program not understand w- what's really important to us as it relates to 1v1 defending, which is like the basics, right? Like Closing space, breaking your steps, being patient in the tackle, really keeping your feet. I mean, how many times have you seen players like dive in in the defensive third and you're like, yeah, (laughs) it's like cringe, right? And so that's what we're really working on now and creating a, a defensive identity. And then we kind of build from there. So then we start to work on keeping the ball, moving it quickly, and then being really creative and encouraging our players to take take defenders 1v1 in the attacking third and have an urgency to go to goal. So so yeah, I mean, long way of answering your question about do you feel like your strength lies in defending and I'll say yeah, we we work really hard on defending and we take a lot of pride in it and it's something that we just want to continue to strengthen. I think most of our backs are coming back this year see i don't even know because it's a new team. <laughs> well what, what's in, what's interesting there though about that that defensive aspect i mean you were a great goal scorer as a player right i mean you were you were a playmate at, at colgate i was reading you you left the school as the all are you, are you still the all-time leader in goals and assists there you were when no. you left no no for, fortunately not <laughs> but you were at one point so I mean, you must you, you must also be as a coach. I mean, you you must enjoy playmaking and players who can facilitate and players who can just create. Right. I mean, that's that's got to be something that's in your DNA as, as a player and as a coach. Yeah. I mean, my my college coach would still to this day, she's the, the current head coach at Smith now. So I see her quite often. Her name is Kathy Braun. She would always tease me about my inability. <laughs> <laughs> to defend Oof. 
that's a t- through the middle of the field. That's a tough way to describe it. Yeah. <laughs> so maybe there's a part of that 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 I carry into my own coaching. That that I I was really like, I think I took it to heart, right? And so sending <laughs> is it it's really important to me. So yeah, I I was an attacking type player. I hope that my defending improved over the course of my college <laughs> career. I remember when I was playing, we were, we were in a game. I think, I think we were playing Princeton at home and it was the, the score really bizarre scoreline. It was like four to four <laughs> and it was late in the game. And I had just made this huge run forward. And one of my teammates who played in the back was like screaming at me to get back. And I'm like, Heidi, I can't. <laughs> and she's like, yes, you can. And you will because you must. And I'm like, oh, my God. Like, yes. <laughs> and, but it's, it's defending is, is in part emotional, right? Like right. it's a lot of it's hard work and discipline. And I think the, the reason that we're spending so much time building connections right now off the field is because there will be moments late in the season where a 10 makes a giant run forward and has to transition defensively. And she's, she's going to think that she can't do it. Mm. And there's going to be a back who needs her to do it. And, and what's going to enable her to do it is her ability and willingness to fight for that back that she has to get, that she has to recover for. And that's going to be the only reason why why she's going to find the energy to get back. So I believe those those connections are really important and do translate onto the field. And yeah, it's hard work, and you just you got to do it for each other. I just noticed you're playing Smith on September September 10th, I think, on the schedule. So hopefully you don't get reminded of those those <laughs> those defensive inabilities. On the, on the... <laughs> So within the league this year, I mean, obviously it's strong top to bottom, but what are you, what are you hearing? What do you, who, who do you expect to be significant challenges throughout the season? I know, I know that could be any team within the league, but, but just in terms of the last few seasons, who, who's really stuck out to you within the league? Yeah. I mean, man, it's like every single NESCAC game is just such a battle and it it doesn't even matter like historically, like where teams have finished in the standings. I mean, look, just look at the results. Like any team can beat any other team. And so it's just, it's so important that we come to play every game. Well, really that any team comes to play on any given day. So yeah, I can't even, I mean, historically, certainly there have been stronger teams and and less strong teams in the NESCAC, but the way things are now, it's there's so much parity, and we have to be ready to play every single opponent in the NESCAC. Does it give give a sense of pride? Like, for instance, Wesleyan gets to the to the Final Four a couple of years ago. How how much pride does that get? I mean, the NESCAC is so well known now across the country, women's and men's soccer. But how much pride does that give the the fellow coaches in the league when it, when a program makes a run like that in the NCAA tournament? Yeah, I mean, I, I think tons, right? Like. We battle each other during the regular season and in the NESCAC tournament. And and so certainly we're competitors 
during those times. But when when we get to the NCAA tournament, I think everybody's really rooting for each other. And then if a team has a particularly special run and makes it really far, it's like, what can we do as like other teams in the conference as colleagues to like help that team succeed? And so I remember talking to Ama a bunch like when Wesleyan went to the final four and believe it or not that was like the first year they had ever gone to the NCAA tournament and right. so we were talking through things that you know as someone who's been to the NCAA tournament like a bunch of times like she was asking me questions about how things work and and it's just it was just like a really stark reminder of like man we're all super competitive and it could be any one of us that get through and and make that special run in the NESCAC. And, and, and it's really hard to do. Once you get to the NCAA tournament, like anything can happen, right? It's a really special time of year. Teams are playing really inspired. There's momentum involved. There's luck involved. There's crazy weather that you have to contend with potentially. And so really anything can happen. And, and, it's it's I, I do think the NESCAC schools and coaches really take pride in whoever breaks through. <laughs> right. Right. Makes a deep run. Right. How about for you now in the off season these days with recruiting? I mean, do you I marvel at how much you coaches have to travel and go and go to different showcase events. And we mentioned you but you've been with the program for a while now. Does the recruiting aspect ever wear on you? Because like you mentioned, you're away from your family. You're going to see players. They're battles. You're trying to land players that other programs are also trying to land. How, how enthusiastic are you about that whole aspect now at this point in your coaching career? Yeah, so I was talking to my assistant, Sue Delgarcio, who does the bulk of the recruiting. And I'll I'll talk about that in a second. But we were just talking about how much of a roller coaster. Yeah. <laughs> The recruiting process is. And that aside, I mean, I think what's what's hard about it is that it never ends. Mm -hmm. Right. Like recruiting is always happening and and there are more intense times than than others, but it, it really never ends. And. The volume, I mean, there's just I can't. Emphasize enough, like how much volume <laughs> there is. And, and that's a good thing, right? Like that prospective students are interested in your school and i think it's it's in part the school probably a really big part and in part like how much success we've had over the years and so it's good but it's really hard to manage and there are only two of us doing it and sue does most of it <laughs> and she does, she does the bulk of the travel so I think if I were alone or had someone who was unable or unwilling to to do what Sue does, I, I don't think our program would be nearly as successful because it, it's a lot. I mean, I, I go to a few of these a year, a few of these national showcases a year. And when I'm there, my head is spinning. Look, I mean, the amount of games and the players you're keeping tabs on and who who's, who fits your program. I don't know how. It's the one thing I, oh, I, there's a lot of things I marvel at about coaches, but that's the main thing is just the recruiting aspect. Cause like you said, like you always going to have your phone handy and at the ready. There's always, there's always something you're always trying to land somebody. You always have to think for the future. Like you have your season this 
fall, but you always have to look down the line at what are you going to look like in 25 and 26 and 27. I mean, that's just, it's crazy to me. Yeah. Yeah. And one sort of interesting wrinkle this year is with the Supreme Court decision and banning affirmative action. Like we take a lot of pride in the diversity of our program Mm. and, and we've had a lot of success with that. And we're always striving to do better. And, and that, that makes things a little tricky. For sure. That's a, that's a great point. Yeah, I mean, I hadn't even thought of that. So if you could just sum up this season coming up, what, like, what would be, I mean, you, you kind of answer this, but what would be a success? I mean, what's, what, what do you like? Does it vary from year to year what you're looking to do? Or the, the goal is pretty much always the same at this point for Amherst? I mean, I, th- I think our ultimate competitive goal is to win a national championship. That's something that the program hasn't achieved yet. The You've been team, close, though. You've been close a bunch of times, right, to that national championship. Not close enough, right? <laughs> the, the team did go to the national final in 2001. Mm-hmm. I came on board in, in 04, so I wasn't here yet. So since I've I've come on board, the, the, the best we've done is the Elite Eight. Right. And we've lost in penalty kicks a few times mm-hmm. in that round to go to the Final Four. So I think competitively, our our ultimate goal is to win a national championship. I do like deep down in my bones feel that we're going to get there someday. And every year is just, I, I have a renewed sense of hope that, that this year is going to be the year. But I'm not quite, I'm not there yet. What I'm focused on, what the team is focused on is is Wednesday, next Wednesday, the 6th, our first game. I mean, I, I think with talented teams, you have to be really careful not to look too far ahead. And we've talked about that. Certainly we have, we have goals, but we're not, we're not super focused on our outcome goals at this point. Sure. Well, before we let you go, Jen, we have to do our extra time segment with our producer, David Yaz, where he hits us with three random questions in the soccer landscape, and we're, we're going to do our best to answer them. So I hope, I hope you're ready for this. Well, you said you'd, you'd throw me some soft, though. So you've been <laughs> I don't know if he's going to follow through on that promise. Or I'm going to accidentally hit the leave button. <laughs> it's the end of regulation, so let's move to extra time. Wait, this is producer Dave. I'm Matt. You told me to hit her with everything I had here, so I'm confused. But now it is time for extra time. Three questions are both Matt and our guest are unprepared for this. So, Coach, you're the guest. You get to go first. Question number one. In all your years playing and coaching, have you ever followed any superstitions? (laughs) (laughs) And go to reveal them to us. Yeah. So, as a player, I I can't think of any team superstitions that we have right now. But as a player... Like almost the entirety, starting from my first year at Colgate, we we had to we had to wear temporary tattoos for each game. Mm. And it's funny because I, I look back at pictures and you can always see on like any given player, like the tattoo. There wasn't like a specific place it had to be, but it just had to be exposed. So like on a leg or an arm or something. And I remember like being being on the road like in some random place, like looking for a store or like, I don't know, remember back in the day, like in the mall, they had those sure. like kiosks, some ball machine type. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, oh, yeah. Yeah. Like throw a quarter in and get like three tattoos. 
So it didn't so have we, to be any specific tattoo? It's just anything no, you pick up? Oh. No, just anything. Oh, really? So okay. We would scramble to find those little kiosk things or like stores that would sell tattoos. Everybody had to have a tattoo on. Interesting. Matt, how about you? I was never the superstitious type in any sport I ever played. I just kind of just showed up. And I mean, there was no like pregame meals that I always had to have the same thing. It was just like, kind of like whatever, like my mom was cooking. I just ate like whatever, whatever we could rummage up. I just ate before any high school game or anything like that. So I was never the superstitious type. Did you ever have a teammate that like refused to change his underwear or things like that? Yeah, I had some, yeah, I had some people that wouldn't wash socks and stuff. (laughs) There there, there was some gross stuff going on, but uh, I haven't cleaned these and I had a goal. I've had four goal games, a goal in four games in a row. I'm not cleaning these, stuff like that. Yeah, but I never, uh, that was never me. I kind of just showed up, which is weird because I can be neurotic about a lot of things, but like (laughs) the superstitions in sports was not, not something I ever, I ever stuck with. Okay. Question number two, Matt, you get to go first. Okay. Ted Williams once said that the hardest thing to do in sports is to hit a baseball. What's the hardest thing to do in soccer? Ooh, hardest thing to do in soccer. That's a good one. Man, I don't... I, individual skill, I mean... Right, I mean, it could be... Uh, yeah, I don't know. That's that's tough. I mean, it, there's just things, like, I mean, just like putting a ball 40, 50 yards on someone's foot while they're making a run is, is hard in and of itself. I. I don't know. There's, then there's like individual moves. I mean, that you dribbling moves and things that are, are probably hard to 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 do. I I don't have a good answer for that. I'm curious to see what what coach sure. would say about this because I don't have an I don't have an individual thing like like hitting a a two iron in golf is super hard. But I don't know that I can't pinpoint a thing in soccer that's the hardest individual thing to do. What do you think, coach? To score a goal when you need one. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's, I mean, that's almost, how did I not Good think answer. of that? Yeah, that's a great answer. It seems like there's a force field around the goal whenever you're down late in the game. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There was for, for the U.S. women's soccer team, there was for the whole World Cup. I mean, they couldn't find the back in the net with no matter how many chances they had. I've always thought heading was the hardest thing to do is that not hard to, as someone who was never well, much of a soccer player it's it hard looks, to, it's hard to do it right i would say i mean a lot of times like i probably told the story a million times on this podcast but we used to do a drill in high school where like they'd punt it out there'd be like lines on each there'd be a line on the right side line on the left side and you'd run in the middle and just try to win the header which was like serious. i mean it didn't matter how you won the header you just had to get your head on the ball and it could go backwards it could go like nowhere where you want to put it so i yeah Heading is a tough skill set to have to do it right and put it where you need to. But I feel like the pros of like are so adept at it. They're they're like they can. Place I just it don't know how you time it and then control your body. It's it to me that's an impressive thing that I could never do. But question number three, we move on and coach, we come back to you. How much does a soccer game lose if you compare the TV product to the live product? We are, we talk a lot here about the popularity of growing popularity of soccer in the U.S. and elsewhere, and big TV audience, of course, Apple TV believes in it, but live game versus TV game. What are your thoughts, Coach? Certainly live game is my preference. There's just something about being like in a stadium and being able to experience all the sights and sounds and everything around you. I talked about that energy that our players bring when they arrive. It's very contagious, and I would argue that it's a similar feeling at a mm. live game. Obviously, you don't get that when you're watching a game on TV. But man, I I, I also really love watching <laughs> soccer on TV. You do? Okay. My my nine year old son is is super into the Premier League, and we have it on 
every weekend. And it's fun. I mean, you, you also get to see like replays, right? Like the mm. video replay and, and you get to see like up close these really controversial plays. So that's fun. You are a soccer nerd, Coach. <laughs> I mean that affectionately. Guilty as charged. Yes. Yeah, ahead, so Coach. certainly my preference is, is live, but TV is a close second. Okay. Matt, your thoughts? Yeah, I think live is is definitely the better experience. I mean, for most sporting events, I think in general, just being there and and, and feeling the environment and seeing. Th- I mean, sometimes when you're in, when you're at a soccer game live, too, you see things that the, the TV just doesn't pick up. You see the full run that a player made to make something happen. Well, that's that's what I would say. Yeah, I would I mean, argue it's maybe it is important. I mean. The NFL is an example of a great TV product, in, right. in my opinion. Better, t- yeah, better TV maybe, product than an in-person product. Well, exactly. Yeah. And you're saying soccer is, is the reverse, just because soccer, of things yeah. like the size of the field and all that. Yeah. Soccer, I think, and I, I think sometimes maybe even basketball is better in person too. Well, if you're close, because you just get a, right. you get a sense for like the size of the players and just how they're moving a little bit better. But I just think soccer, especially when you're talking about like if you're going to a pro match too, with just the environment and the fans and the supporters and just how how they are in the stands and just the environment as a whole. But the TV so- like soccer TV product is is really good. I mean, no commercial breaks. I mean, the way the cameras are angled, you can usually get a sense of what the run was. I mean, it's it's a lot of wide wide camera where you can see the whole field, so it's it's still really good. But I, I do think I, I'd prefer the in person experience. Of course. Yeah, I mean, the technology really has <laughs> evolved, sure. right, to be able to make soccer like a really enjoyable experience. And and now you can you can see that run from like a different part of the field. So I, I keep my answer live performance, but TV is not so bad. No, definitely not. Very good. You have both successfully negotiated extra time <laughs> and uh, have some free orange slices for you both out back after the game. <laughs> oh, man, I used to love those orange slices. <laughs> and back to you, Matt. Half time. All right. Thanks, David. And uh, Jen, thanks again for joining us. This was awesome. And uh, obviously, we'll be, we'll be keeping close tabs on the program this fall. And I know you guys are probably headed to, to another successful season. So thanks again for joining us. Thank you. It was, it was really my pleasure. And, and I do feel like it was a privilege to be able to talk about the program and the passion I have for it. We appreciate that. Thanks again to Jen Hughes for joining the podcast. I'm Matt Langoni. Thanks for listening. New England Soccer Journal's The Goal podcast is produced by David Yaz and is a Siemens Media production. You've been listening to New England Soccer Journal's The Goal podcast. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe wherever you listen to our podcast. Or visit anysoccerjournal.com forward slash podcast. Siemens Media. Inspiring. Informative. Insightful.